0: Good morning, beloved. Good morning. Great to see everyone here today. Uh, I want to invite you this morning to join me and turn your Bibles to First Peter chapter two. First Peter chapter two, and we're going to be covering verses uh, four through ten. If you're uh, new with us, we've been going verse by verse through this great first uh, epistle by Peter, and today we come to um, another wonderful section of Scripture as Peter focuses on the incredible privileges we possess in Christ. And, uh, I don't know, without exaggerating after my time and study this week, this passage includes what may be the most insightful and encouraging portrayal and insight to the identity and the purpose of God's people really anywhere in the New Testament. I don't have a problem saying that. I mean, this stuff is this stuff's really profound, so I hope you're tuned in and ready to go today. So uh, let's begin as we normally do. We'll read through the text once through and after we can look at each of these verses and see what Peter has for us today. So let's begin there in uh, verse 4, as so we hear now the word of the true and living God. Peter says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light once you were not a people but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen. Um, As you'll recall from the letter's introduction, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, is writing to God's elect exiles who are scattered throughout the provinces of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and are experiencing severe persecution in this first century, filled with um, all sorts of animosity and hatred towards them. Their lives are constantly being threatened. And what Peter gives them here is a rich understanding of who they are in Christ. Who they are in Christ, and then who they are in Christ, then becomes the basis of their testimony to the world. But what is it that they have been given? Well, we know from Ephesians chapter 1 that we've been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. But what are those spiritual blessings? Well, we know, for example, from 2 Peter 1.3, That he has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. All things. Well, what exactly does that mean all things? Well here in our verses this morning. Peter unpacks the richness of at least eight spiritual privileges. That we have in Christ. And the first one that he points to. Is our union with Christ. Our union with Christ. We have a union. With the Lord. Jesus Christ. Notice how verse 4. First opens. He says as you come to him. And I just want to stop there for a moment. And just say this. That being a Christian. Is not about being a member of at a church. It's not even joining a group of people who are gathered together and attached or following a religion. It's not about uh, accepting some theology. Uh, Being a Christian is about coming to Christ. It's about coming to Him. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11 verse 28 Come to me Come to me all who labor And are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Come take my yoke upon you. And learn from me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. The once troubled soul. Comes to Christ. And finds rest. In him. And this is repeated. You'll recall throughout. The time in John's gospel. For instance in John chapter 6. Verse 35, Jesus told the multitude after feeding the fishes and loaves, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Two verses later, in John 6, verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And again in John chapter 7, verse 37, Jesus stood up on the great day of the feast and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 17, The spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty Come. So to be a disciple of Christ then is one who comes to Christ and is to come to Christ in such a way that you have literally joined to him in an an indivisible union. In fact, this is repeated to us throughout Ephesians chapter 1. For example, in this well-known verse in verses 3 through 4, the Apostle Paul writes blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Our union with Christ is described as being in him, in Christ. Notice this again as you continue down Ephesians chapter 1. In verse 7, he says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Verse 12, in Christ. Verse 13, in him. Verse 20, in Christ. So Peter is really painting this reality for us. He says in verse 4 then, as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. So when we come to Christ we take on his very life. We take on his character. Christ is a living stone and because of our union with him we become living stones because he grants us eternal life. We become, says Second Peter 2, 1, 4, partakers of the divine nature. We are joined to Christ. Paul says in Galatians two twenty, "Is it's no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. And as we grow in our union with Christ, we really don't have the ability after a while to mark out where we end and and where he begins. We are united with Christ. To be a Christian then is to be one with Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 17 says, He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. You are the temple of the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. So the first thing that is to be understood about the privilege of being a believer, and this is only true, of course, of those in Christianity. No other uh, religion offers this kind of union with their deity. Um, Now, the idea is that um, initially you come to Christ in salvation but that's not the only meaning that Peter is conveying in this compound verb to come it also means to come with the idea of remaining or as Jesus said in John fifteen four, abide in me and I in you coming to Christ denotes this um, intense drawing near to Christ an intimate abiding, personal fellowship. That's why the book of Hebrews says numerous times, let us draw near, let us draw near, let us draw near. In other words, we have this union with Christ. Let's take full advantage of it by drawing near to him. This is the heart's longing in our worship to come before our Lord, to be moving in the direction of Christ in order to gaze upon his glory and to be increasingly transformed into his image and so let's see how peter lays the rest of this out he says in verse four as you come to him a living stone so peter is using an analogy here and he's going to refer to a number of images and texts from um, the old testament um, texts from the uh, prophet isaiah um, from the psalms um, that look forward to the messiah peter says something interesting here though he says this living stone though it's been rejected by men is chosen and precious in the sight of god you see god is going to use this precious stone to build something incredible he's going to build his church he's going to build his church and because of our union in christ verse five you yourselves are also like living stones And God is going to use you in such a way as to build this spiritual house. And so you have here this stone, this this precious stone who is Christ. And he is a stone that has been perfectly um, shaped and chiseled. Therefore, he has been chosen by God to be this cornerstone of this spiritual house that God is building. And as we'll see later, the cornerstone was the most important stone um, in any building as it was the first stone to be laid in the corner and by which you would align and stack all of the other stones on top of it. Think of a stone foundation. Um, If your foundation is built with uneven stones, um, broken stones that weren't fitting just right, your whole entire house would likely fall right over. But by choosing a choice stone, a precious stone in the corner that has been perfectly fitted and placed, then you can begin to stack upon it all the other stones as God is building up this new spiritual house. The curiosity is, is why does Peter call it a living stone? Um, Well, um, in the Old Testament, the Lord is... Um, certainly referred to often as uh, a rock. Um, I think of Psalms 18:2The Lord is my um, rock and my fortress and my deliverer. Um, Psalm 78:35 says they remembered that God was their rock, the Most High, their redeemer. Um, uh, what about uh, Daniel chapter 2? Um, messianic um, tones when Nebuchadnezzar has the dream of the stone that um, strikes the foot of the, the great, Image breaking it into pieces symbolizing the destruction of all these world empires. Um, It's a messianic picture of the the rock, the stone. Um, But this is something different than that. This is the imagery of the temple. This is a construction metaphor that Peter is building for us. And he has moved from a metaphor of a mother um, breastfeeding her newborn baby with the pure milk of the word to a metaphor of construction in which christ is the cornerstone and we as living stones are being built up in this new spiritual house of worship we are now the temple god dwells within his temple god's people are his church and he is a living stone and because he lives we live also so we come to him, a living stone, rejected by men. What does that mean? Um, well, we know from our time in John's gospel, John 1:11 says that he came to his own, and that his own people received him not. that the people of Israel rejected their Messiah. The religious Israel, the temple, rejected its Messiah. the world at large hated Christ and killed him he was rejected and most of the world today still rejects christ but though he is rejected by men in the sight of god he is chosen and he is precious at his baptism the father's voice from heaven came down this is my beloved son in whom i am well pleased though the world may hate him he is chosen and precious in the sight of god And as living stones, we are eternally united with him. And we are being built up into this spiritual house. It's this beautiful picture Peter's painting for us here. And as we know, in the Old Testament economy, the temple was where man would go to worship and encounter God and to offer his sacrifice. But now in this new spiritual building, God is the building, his church out of living stones. So as the church, we are now the temple of God. It's an incredible image, God-honoring privilege. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Do you not know? So this is the first of our, incredible privileges your union with christ and there's so much that we could add to that but uh, we got to go on peter doesn't stop there defining the privileges uh, that we have for belonging to christ number two is the privilege of access to christ access to christ notice what peter says in in verse five you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we not only have union with Christ, but we have communion with Christ. We have direct access to Christ in the Old Testament system because of um, the impurity of sin. Man was separated from God. Sin caused Adam and Eve to be driven out of the Garden of Eden In the Old Testament, God warned his people, Get back! Get back! On Mount Sinai, he told Moses, I'm I'm coming down the mountain in a pillar of fire. Uh, Mark it off so the people don't come near where I am coming. If they touch that mountain, they will die. The most sacred place of God's presence in the tabernacle and then later in the temple was the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies. It was there where the presence of God was. And, and man was separated from God from, with a veil in the temple. A massive veil. A 60 foot tall veil. And only once a year could just the high priest enter into the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur. The Day of Atonement. And only then he could enter to burn incense. Um, to sprinkle uh, this, this animal sacrificial blood unto the mercy seat um, of the Ark of the Covenant and by doing so the priest would atone for his own sins and the sins of his people and it is said that the priest would wear um, jingling bells on their clothing or around their ankles and as long as you could hear the bells jingling as they went into the tabernacle or, or in the temple behind the veil um, you knew he was still alive and God hadn't killed him for his um, being uncleanly or, or un, uh, not being holy and cleansed in the presence of a, a holy God. It wasn't until the cross that the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, symbolizing complete access now to God, that everybody who comes to him through Christ was no longer separated by sin. And so Peter says you are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood where not only God's temple we're now holy priests. We have all become kings and priests. We have total and complete access to God now through Christ. We don't need a priest. You don't need a temple. You don't need a sacrifice. You don't need anyone to draw near to God. Our access to God is immediate. God is in us and we are in Christ. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10 verse 19 therefore brethren having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of jesus now this term the, the holiest is referring to the the holy of holies uh, the holiest place that uh is on earth except hebrews if you read uh, earlier in the book it makes it clear um in the earlier chapters that now he's talking about actually the heavenly sanctuary uh possibly the very throne room of God the very presence of God Uh, moment by moment you are walking with him in God in prayer in daily communion with Christ through the spirit of Christ the ultimate and final sacrifice has been made the one true and perfect sacrifice the blood of Christ has been spilt verse 19 therefore beloved having boldness you now can enter into the presence of God the holiest by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh remember is the veil that separated man from God but now we go right through it because Christ has offered his flesh verse 21 and having a high priest and Christ is now our, our our high priest Uh, He has made the sacrifice and has brought us into this new and holy priesthood. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts been sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Just a ton of imagery here if you have spent time in the Old Testament um, and now we are part of this priesthood that he has called us for. Now, when you think of the priesthood in the Old Testament, there are several things that characterize Old Testament priests that we should be aware of if if we are, in fact, now priests in this calling. First of all, the priests had to be chosen of God. Number one, they had to be chosen by God. In Exodus chapter 28, God chooses um, Aaron and his sons, um, despite the fact that... Despite the fact that they were from the tribe of Levi, all right, one of the the least respected tribes of, of Israel's 12 tribes. In fact, they were cursed, Genesis 49 says, because of their sinful violence. Still, Exodus 28 reveals God sovereignly chose his priests. And, you know, God's choosing still operates by the same principles under the new covenant today. It says, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, For consider your calling, brethren. There were not many wise, many mighty, many noble among you, but God has cho- chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak to shame the strong. He chose the lowly of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before the Lord. And isn't that interesting that God chose the first priest from a a particularly imperfect, cursed group of sinners from the tribe of Levi, and he still chooses his spiritual priesthood the same today. Not many wise, not many noble, not many mighty, so that no man may boast before the Lord. So the first characteristic... Of the priesthood is they had to be chosen by God, chosen by God. The second characteristic of the uh, priesthood is that God cleansed them from sin before they um, embarked onto their duties. Um, Aaron and his sons had to go through a number of ceremonies that you read about, and consecrations, and burnt uh, offerings, um, and to indicate externally a willingness to abandon um, sin. And it was a sign of, of cleansing all these ceremonies before God, um, before they entered the, the priesthood. So Moses purified them all, it says, with water. He put a tunic on them. He girded them with a sash, um, clothed them with a robe, um, placed a, a breastplate, remember, on them and a turban for their head, um, just as God had commanded Leviticus chapter 8. Uh, Moses trains them in all the different functions of, of the sacrifices, in every part of all the um, cleansing ceremonies and washings and sin offerings, no one could enter the priesthood unless they had been cleansed. Unless they had been cleansed. So they had to be trained to function as priests. They had to be anointed. They had to be devoted to the teaching of God's word. For example, it says in Ezra 7.10, that Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teach his decrees and laws to the people of Israel. And then thirdly, God clothed the priests for service. As I just mentioned, the priests wore all these special garments symbolizing their unique call um, to righteousness and um, virtue and godliness. God had set them apart. God had set them apart and wanted them to appear distinct from the people so everyone would know they uniquely belonged to him. They were his priests. You are now the holy priesthood of God. And all of those things that I just mentioned are still very true of the New Testament believer today. You're like, what? Well, we are chosen by God. We are chosen by God. Christ has cleansed you from your sin. We are anointed by him for service. We are prepared for duty by the power of the Holy Spirit and the gifting of the Spirit in us. We are trained through the word of God. You have been set apart by God. You have been sanctified and washed by the blood of Christ. We are a holy priesthood. And I think sometimes, you know, I know I do, underestimate that could I, a fallen eye, um, come in any kind of humble service that is even close to being acceptable to my holy God? But did you notice what it says there at the end of verse 5? To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Our sacrifices aren't bulls and goats, but spiritual sacrifices. And what are these spiritual sacrifices, you ask, since you're in the priesthood of God? Well, specifically, we could look to a familiar verse in Romans chapter 12, 1-2. That says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. No more dead sacrifices. Your body is now a living sacrifice that is holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So he commands us to to present to God your bodies as a living sacrifice and sacrifices of dead animals are no longer acceptable to the God because the Lamb of God was sacrificed once and for all. The redeemed of the Lord are now to offer themselves, themselves and all that they are and all that they have as a living sacrifice to God. But what does that look like? Look at verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Verse 1. Live a life that is holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual sacrifice. Practically what's it look like? It's service. Worship. Prayer. Loving one another. How do I offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ? How about doing what Hebrews 13 15 through 16 commands you? Through Him then. Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of your lips that gives thanks to God. And do not neglect doing good and sharing. For with such sacrifices God is pleased. What is my spiritual sacrifice? Through Christ I continually offer up a sacrifice of praise and give thanks to his holy name. Don't neglect doing good. Worship him and serve. And then what about Ephesians chapter 5 verse 2. Paul says live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So as we commune in loving fellowship with one another here today and give thanks to his holy name in our prayers and in our praise you beloved are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ and here's the thing that I want you to remember notice again what it says at the end of that verse Our spiritual sacrifices are only acceptable to God because they are through Jesus Christ. It is only because Christ is in you and works through you that your sacrifices are acceptable to God. It is Christ who has given you a new heart. It is Christ who has caused you to love God, to love one another, to love to serve him wholeheartedly, to praise and to bless His holy name. To not neglect doing good. To present our bodies as a living sacrifice. God already has your soul. He wants all of you. All of you. The body is the old self. That is the unredeemed self. The flesh. Give him the lust of the eyes. The lust of the flesh. The pride of life. For with such sacrifices. God is pleased. Well. A third reality that Peter marks for us is security in Christ. This just keeps getting better. Security in Christ. Notice verse 6. Peter says, for it stands in Scripture. And I wish we had more time to develop um, each of these. But um, what's important to know is Peter's quoting from Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen. For Isaiah said in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion... Zion is uh, another word that can be used for Jerusalem. A stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And then Peter adds, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Whoever puts their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, is precious, chosen, cornerstone, the promise of scripture is you will never be put to shame. And this word translated as shame means to, to be disgraced, to be brought to utter shame to be brought to utter confusion. This verse actually might be better translated, whoever believes in him will not be deceived. Think of it this way. Anybody who has been ensnared in any form of religion outside of trusting Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, will be put to shame. Why? They have been deceived. They have been deceived. The Muslim terrorists who who believes if they blow themselves up on behalf of Allah or Muhammad, um, won't wake up to find 72 virgins. No, there'll be nothing but weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. And they will experience everlasting shame in darkness. But the spiritual privilege Peter is focusing on here is our security in Christ. You will never be disappointed if you believe in him. God brings all of his sons and daughters to glory. He knows all the sheep by name. He calls them all. He leads them on. He loses none of them who shall separate us from the love of Christ. God has a purpose for your life. He will unfold that purpose and bring it to pass. Nothing can alter that. The Lord Jesus Christ is the perfect, exact, precise, precious one of God on whom God is building his church. All the living stones are chosen and selected by God. He stacks them upon this precious choice cornerstone who is perfectly laid and all the other stones lay perfectly on him and they make up the perfect temple of God. And in that temple, no stone is taken out. No stone gets loose. No stone is out of place. No stone is removed. No stone just falls out no one will be put to shame he will bring all of his sons and daughters to glory and that's a picture of our security in christ so we have union with christ we have access to god through christ we have security in christ watch your notes, number four our affection for christ our affection for christ notice how verse seven opens so the honor is for you who believe. That word therefore, honor is uh, timei. In the Greek it means to value something, to pay respect, to honor something. How can you um, identify a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? They are someone who finds Christ precious. Precious. Their life honors Christ. Their affection honors. Is towards Christ. They can't get enough. Of Christ. Jesus said in John 8.42. If God were your father. You would love me. Peter said in uh, 1 Peter 1.8. Though you have not seen him. You love him. And though you do not see him now. You believe in him. With all of our weaknesses. And all of our failures and all of our shortcomings we are marked by those who love Christ remember the end of John's gospel what was Jesus worried about with restoring Peter three times do you love me do you love me do you love me that's all I'm asking 1st Corinthians sixteen twenty-two: if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ he is to be accursed as Christians our affection is totally And completely on Christ. And this distinguishes um, Christians from a religious person. We can't get enough of the person of Christ. We can't get enough of his beauty and his glory and his preciousness. That's why we read the scriptures. Because we see him revealed there. And we want to know him more. That's why we commune with him in prayer. That we might have those intimate times of of communion with the Godhead knowing that he hears and he answers even my prayers. Wow. Christ is the topic of our conversations. We can't get enough of this cornerstone who's precious and chosen. We study the Bible, we find Christ. We're in the Old Testament, we find the anticipation of Christ. And the foreshadows and pictures of Christ. We find the prophecies of the one who is to come, the anticipation of Christ, and leads to the incarnation of Christ in the Gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The book of Acts is the proclamation of the church pro- pro- proclaiming Christ. The, the epistles, the letters, are the explanation of Christ. The book of Revelation is the glorification. Of Christ. So. Verse 7 says. The honor is for you who believe. You see only those who believe in Christ. Manifest a love for Christ. In contrast to those who do not believe. Those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected. Has become. The cornerstone. Here Peter quotes. Psalm 118 verse 22. As he. Asserts it was the. The Jewish leaders who were the builders who rejected Christ, the stone. Jesus quoted this exact same verse to the Pharisees. To them, Jesus was worthless as God's cornerstone because he did not fit their preconceived notions on who the Messiah should be. Therefore, having become the cornerstone, verse 8, in a stone of stumbling in a rock of offense, that's Isaiah 8, 14, 15, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Isaiah knew this was going to happen. So there it is. You either love Christ as precious stone and have affection for him, or he becomes to you a stone of stumbling. And Christ becomes not cornerstone, but a rock of offense. What are the privileges we have in Christ? We have union with Christ, access to Christ, security in Christ, affection for Christ. And then number five, election by Christ. You have been elected, chosen by Christ. Notice the start of verse nine. But you, you are a chosen race. So unlike those who reject the Lord Jesus, and are destined for eternal judgment, believers in Christ are a chosen race that transcends all earthly ethnicity. There's only one Christian race, just one. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are all a part of it. You are a chosen race. In fact, the Lord established that initially back in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Listen to what he said in verse 6 to Israel. For you are a people, holy to the Lord your God. Your Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. (laughs) How awesome is that? The uninfluenced love of God was set upon his chosen people, the people of Israel. Now the uninfluenced love of God is set upon his church the bride of Christ and you are a chosen race Ephesians 1 4 through 4-5 says for he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ your name was written in the Lamb's book of life before the world began, before there was anything in existence other than the triune God, God already knew and already set his love and affection on you. He chose you for adoption into his eternal family. And really, th- this is one of the most um, really worship-motivating of all the teachings and doctrines in scripture because all the other doctrines come out of that one that that was in the beginning of everything in the mind of God before he created you God chose for himself a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth not because of anything you have done in fact despite what you have done The Lord set his love and affection on you. You are a chosen race. Peter's not done. He's got more to say. Number six, we have dominion with Christ. Dominion with Christ. He says there in verse nine, not only are we a chosen race, but you are a royal priesthood. So you go from being chosen by Christ to reigning with Christ. You were in the priesthood, but now you're in the royal priesthood. Revelation 20 verse 6 says they will be priests of God and of Christ and will rule and reign with him for a thousand years. Six times it says in Revelation 20. thousand years. A thousand years. They'll be on the earth for a thousand years. Revelation 5 verse 10 says we will reign with Christ on the earth. We are royal priests of a godly Kingdom. The King is Christ, so as living stones we are being built up into the spiritual house. It's not just any house; this is a royal house, uh, a palace, if you will, in God's kingdom. Christ is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Second Timothy two twelve says, "We will reign with Him. We will reign with Christ." And then Peter says. Not only are you a chosen race, a royal priesthood, but also a holy nation who are people for his own possession. And are we not so blessed here even still now in the United States of America? Um, Such a a great nation um, when we look at the uh, world at large. But um, keep in mind, um, even this nation that we're citizens of, is only temporary. Um, your true citizenship is in heaven. But until you get to heaven, you're actually technically, spiritually, a part of a holy nation. You're in God's kingdom, first and foremost. Then, then we look at the laws and blessings of, of what uh, the, the people have laid out. First, there's God's law and his nation that we belong to. Um, All this is Old Testament terminology, actually, this is right out of Exodus 19.6, when God was giving the promises of the Old Covenant um, in Mount Sinai, Um, almost word for word, he told Moses, tell the people, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, that's what he said. However, because of sin, because of Israel's unbelief, Israel forfeited her privilege of being God's unique people and being used in the way that God wanted to use them. But what is a tragedy for Israel eventually became a blessing to the Gentiles and now was actually the whole plan God had to touch the entire world. Paul tells us about this. It's summarized quickly in Romans chapter 11, verse 11. He says. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Talking of the people of Israel, by no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Verse 15, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? God hasn't forgotten about Israel. He still has big plans and he will use them in a mighty way. But a lot of the promises we see being blessed to the church today were available to Israel 5,000 years ago. 5,000 years ago. Well, Two last quick things and we'll wrap it up here number seven is compassion from christ compassion we serve a compassionate lord jump down to verse 10 i'm saving that uh end of se- uh verse 9 for at the end verse 10 it says once you were not a people but now you are god's people once you had not received mercy but now you have received mercy How did you come to be a part of God's chosen people? Was it something that you did? Was it through some achievement of yours? Was it because you worked really hard and now you're a good person? Nope. It was by mercy. It was mercy, God said. You have received mercy. If we had received what we all deserve we should receive death. But God has instead given you mercy. Mercy is God's undeserved kindness. So, what does it mean then to be a Christian, a disciple of Christ? Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people, purely by his mercy. The Apostle Paul gives his testimony To Timothy in 1 Timothy 1 verse 13. He said, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor of those of the faith. Remember in Acts, he's chasing down the the women and and, and people and pulling them out of the house. He was a violent aggressor. Yet God has shown me mercy. That's the Lord's compassion. He is rich in mercy. Ephesians 2 verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. (laughs) Wow. So, what do we see in our verses then here from 1 Peter? These are the spiritual privileges we have in Christ. We are one race one temple, one priesthood, one kingdom, one church, one spirit. And we belong to God wherever we are. But why? There's always someone, but but why? How come? Why has God poured out all of these spiritual blessings onto us? Why have we received such mercy? Why has he poured out the, the lavish riches of his grace, you ask? Well, at least in these verses, I found the answer, and I made it our last spiritual privilege. Our proclamation of Christ. Our proclamation of Christ. This is what it leads to. There are two um, so that's that I want to point out that will answer this. One is in verse 9, and then the other one is in verse 12. But let's start in the middle there of verse 9. Why has he um, blessed us with all these spiritual blessings um, in the heavenlies, you ask? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Already training him to share the gospel. Why has the Lord granted us all of this? Why has he given us union with him and access and security and love and election and dominion, mercy and compassion? Why has he given all of this to us in such magnificent uh, fullness and abundance? First of all, so that you can go tell the world what Christ has done. It's that explicit. Verse 9, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What are all the excellencies? All the things I just recited to you. All the spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ. (laughs) And why has he done this for us so that you might give a testimony an effective testimony an impactful testimony of an undeserved sinner saved by the undeserving mercy and grace of Jesus Christ and even if you're talking to someone who who has persecuted you God is saying in this first century believers Your testimony can be powerful enough to be an effective witness to the mercies of God and bring them to Christ. But it's not just what we say, it's what we do. It's what they see. Jump down to verse 11 and 12 and we'll close with this section. Beloved, Peter says, I urge you as aliens and strangers and again, He's reminding us this world is not your own. You're here, but you're an alien. You're a stranger. You're a foreigner. You're a sojourner. Abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, among the nations. And then here's the second so that. So that in the thing in which they slander you, and beloved, they will, They'll slander you as evildoers. It's already happening now. The the pulpit, if they're preaching the word of Christ, they are slanderers. They are evildoers, the word is saying. The world is saying. So they're going to do this to you. They will lie about you. They may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them. So in the middle of them being slanderers to you, They're watching you. They've heard your testimony and the glories and the excellencies of Christ. But now, on top of that, they've observed you and they've seen your good deeds, despite the fact that they slandered you and they were evildoers. As they observe you, glorify God in the day of visitation. It's a combination of of what you proclaim. And it's how you've acted. I urge you to abstain from fleshly lusts. That's dealing with our sin of the flesh. Don't expect the world to change Whenever time the world sees you, you're acting just like the world. That ruins the testimony. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. So proclaim the excellencies of Christ with your mouth and then live out the excellencies of Christ in your daily testimony, so that in the very thing in which they slander you as evildoers, remember what's happening in this first century. They were accused of rebelling against the Roman government. They were accused of being terrorists. The Christians were blamed for um, burning down Rome. They're accused of being atheists. They didn't attend the the um, idol worship and the pagan worship of the people. They're accused of being an, uh, cannibals because they kept hearing. About us eating and drinking um, the Lord's body and blood. They thought we were some kind of twisted, weird cannibalism thing we we did when we met together. Uh, They were accused of doing social damage because we made slaves and masters their equals. We raised the rights of women. Persecution comes against Christians, though, in all different forms and kinds and cultures. It's coming for us here in the States. We're not going to escape it. But, but what do we do in response to it? Well, we're going to deal with this over the next couple of weeks because Peter will address this. But number one, first of all, we stand up for God's truth. There is zero compromise for that. Cannot compromise for that. But he also tells us we're going to continue to proclaim the excellencies of the Lord Jesus Christ and the mercies he's given us. And we must live that out in the excellencies with a pure heart. And we live those things in the face of the pagans, in the face of the nations, so that the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. What is that? The visitation is the day that the Lord returns. Someday everyone's going to face God and the righteous judge will speak. And in the meantime, God has made you written letters. And your testimony to the outside world is one of the many ways that God uses his people to testify to the mercy of Christ. And so, everyone will face God on judgment day and he will speak. The question is, are you ready to face him? Have you either tasted and seen that the Lord is good or are you running in the opposite direction? Our prayers today is that you've turned to Christ, the light of the world. If you need prayers this morning, um, or if God has moved your heart, we'd love to pray with you, Um, and uh, you're welcome to come forward. Um, Please stand as we praise the Lord, our cornerstone. Thank you.